and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I'm your host, Emma Graney, and this is the Secrets and Lies edition in which we are going to recap another uh, week in Alberta politics. With me today, we have Sarah O'Donnell. Hi there. Hello. We have Paul Simon. Good morning, Miss Emma. Hello, Ms. Paula. And Stuart Thompson. Hey. How you doing? I'm fantastic. You How are you? You always have a coffee with you. Yeah. No hash brown today? I have a four-month-old baby. Yeah. <laughs> I need the caffeine really badly. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> so today we're talking about a few things uh, here on the press gallery. We're going to have a look at the first child intervention panel that uh, happened this week. Also delve into a report into the death of a carer in Alberta and take a quick look at how Alberta politicians reacted to events south of the border. So let's start off with the child intervention panel uh, that happened on Wednesday in Government House. Paula and I spent the entire day there. Woot. Which means that I feel like I should be asking you guys all the questions. I should take it on was, the role of questioner. It was Emma's first trip to Government House. So it was. She, so that she could see the bizarre juxtaposition between the gracious hundred-year-old building and the amazing Star Trek room that we were in, the Alberta room upstairs, which looks like it just escaped from the set of, uh, you know, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. It really does. The acoustics in there are something else. Rick McIver, if you're listening, when you whisper things into Jason Nixon's ear over the other side of the room, the acoustics mean, I can hear it. So, just uh, heads up. Yeah, it, it, it is an amazing room. You hardly need to have microphones in there. No. the acoustics are perfect, which is not, of course, what we're here to talk about, is it, Sarah? No. No. no what we're, we're here to talk about is that this was an interesting piece of political theater in this space. This was the first meeting of the child intervention panel, the much ballyhooed all-party panel, and um, it was a very frustrating meeting. There were a lot of people who had come, uh, uh, parents of children, uh, a, a, a woman who had been in the care system and then come out the other side and become a social worker and a child advocate, uh, many leaders from the indigenous community, and they sat and they sat and they sat and they sat, given no chance to say anything, um, while the panelists discussed uh, all kinds of technical things about how they would record the minutes and who would be allowed to speak and what the privacy rules would be for the meeting and whether they were bound by FOIP, and on and on and on it went as Emma and I rolled our eyes at each other and thought, oh my goodness, we promised Sarah that we would write news about this. <laughs> and there was no news until the very, very end when the acting uh, director of children's services presented some really disturbing and startling new statistics, kinds of numbers that I've been trying to get without success for months about the number of children who have died in care and out of care and about the number of times when Children's Services is called and chooses not to open a file. And so um, it, it was a it was a frustrating day in the sense that it was really bogged down in technicalities. You'd like to think they could have worked out beforehand. My, particu- my yeah. particular favorite moment was when they were all told to consult their e-binders for information and the panelists all looked panicked. And, and was, None of them had their e-binders oh, yet. And finally, was it, was it Nixon or, or McIver who said, you keep talking about our e-binders. Like, where, like, where are our e-binders? And then I think the line was, well, you're getting it. it. It's coming. And it was it was so bizarre. The whole day was riddled with little tiny bits like that. Because they didn't get the panelists the information about what was on the agenda and what they'd be discussing until nine o'clock the evening before. And that was frustrating for a lot of people. For example, the lady who came up from Calgary that I spoke with, uh, who, who was a youth in care herself, and 
these people thought because it's a public meeting, it's the first in this panel in which they're going to be talking to people, these people thought that they would actually be able to turn up and perhaps have a say or let them know what their thoughts were about how this panel should work. But that is exactly the opposite of what happened and they didn't have a, a chance at all to have any input aside from a little locked box downstairs where they could uh, put some written notes or make an online uh, submission. So do you get the sense then that there will be future opportunity to comment? Because yeah. I'm of two minds about this. I mean, in any committee that I've ever been a part of, whether it be you know a community league or a school committee, that very first meeting that you have is always a lot about process. It kind of has to be. You're, you're, you're laying the groundwork. If you haven't had that you know laid out ahead of you or if it's the first time yeah, you're doing it, it's something. Like, it's when you make pancakes and you make the first pancake and the first yeah. pancake is always awful. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and you know, but that's from my perspective, not having an editor breathing down my neck saying, where's your story? What you're writing about? <laughs> In fairness, though, that it was kind of interesting. And I, I do understand why they would have done this, because if they'd come into this panel, the government had come into this panel. I mean, they already have more panel members in the opposition for staff. If they'd come in and said, this is what we're doing and that's how it's going to happen, you do run the risk of the opposition or even the public turning around and saying, oh, you didn't give us a chance to have any input into how this thing's going to work, into how what minutes are going to be, into what privacy will mean, into when we, we do and do not go in camera. So to that extent, I can understand why they did it that way. I mean, it does mean that they didn't hold themselves open to that criticism. However, there's a difference between that and at the end of the meeting when they're like, when will our next meeting be? What does everyone think about this date? Oh, no, I can't make this date. They're literally holding their hands up around the table as to who and who is not available next Wednesday. Well, how about next Thursday? Well, how about next Tuesday, guys? And, and the chair is unavailable. I have to say Debbie Jabour, who's, who's chaired this committee, is a good meeting chair. I mean, I, is, yeah. I was I was grateful because what you do not need in a committee like this is a chair who is hesitant or a chair who is uh, too bossy. I mean, she seemed to strike the right note, uh, sort of like, you know, training dogs the Woodhouse way. I think she's going to be a good committee chair in terms of, you know, running the meetings. But, you know, it, I was frustrated by things. This is supposed to be an open public process, but there will be no live streaming of any of the meetings. So if the panelists have to miss a meeting, there's no way for them to monitor what's happening. Beyond that, there will be no transcripts of any of the meetings. So if you miss a meeting, whether you're a, a community member or a panelist or a journalist, there's no way to check exactly what was said. There will be minutes, but the minutes will be developed by consensus. And summarized as to what was discussed. I mean, one of the, the, the funny uh, Side, side notes to this is, you know, for, for the NDP members of this committee, uh, who've obviously done a lot of consensus work, they, they, they you know, they said, there's going to be a meeting by consensus, it's not going to be by vote. And you could see the looks on the faces of the more um, old school, small seat conservative panel members like, what do you, what do you mean we're not going to vote? What do you mean it's going to be all by consensus? <laughs> um, I think there's going to be a bit of a, a cultural schism on that panel. But I uh, I mean, I'm frustrated as a journalist. I mean, as a columnist, I can't be at every minute of every meeting. I was hoping that I'd be able to rewatch things uh, on an archived live stream or in, or in the minutes the way you can with legislative committees and the way you can with proceedings in the legislature, the way you can with school board meetings and city council meetings. Uh, but there's nothing like that that allows you 
to see what happened on the record. And the the ostensible argument for this is they need to protect the privacy of you know, youth in care or parents or social workers. But we are not going to hear from any of those people for weeks and weeks and weeks. All the first weeks of testimony, if you can call it, it's not actually testimony, all the first weeks of presentations will be by senior bureaucrats um, and subject matter experts. Uh, we're not, you know, and certainly there was nothing that transpired this week that couldn't have been made public. Nothing. No. And those numbers you were talking about, the, the most shocking one to me was the majority of kids who have died in care are just at their first intervention stage. Like, it, this is the first time they're even coming to the um, the attention of child services. Yeah, I mean, what, what we found out is that only 30% of the children who've died since 2014 were actually in care in foster care, in a group home, in a kinship care placement. Only 30%. The other 70% were either kids who they had started to open a file, but they hadn't apprehended them, or they'd been sent back to live with family members or parents, or they were kids who just aged out of the system, who were still getting some kind of supports. So, I mean, that's very troubling to me that 70% of the kids who died weren't actually in care at that time. Uh, they were supposed to be receiving protective services, which were clearly perhaps not protective enough. Um, the other thing that I think Emma and I both found intriguing is that in last year, in 88% of the times that Children's Services was called or tipped that there might be an issue, they didn't open a file at all. But, I mean, there may be reasons for that. We don't know what the reasons are. I mean, it would be odd if they opened a file on, on, on everything. On everybody, but 88% seems high. The other thing that's a bit problematic is that they don't track any of those deaths. So did any of those kids? So, so in about 47,000 cases, they didn't open a file at all. They just referred people to other community supports, that kind of thing. Uh, the department doesn't track whether there were deaths or serious injuries in any of those cases. But the child and youth advocate can, right? The child and youth advocate can, but only if he finds out about the death and only if he finds mm. out that, that there's been an attachment to children's services. Right, yeah. One thing I think is going to be important in these early days is for somebody either involved in this committee or, uh, you know, one of the ministers or the premier herself to really clarify for the public what the goal of this committee is and what its work is supposed to be. Because one of our colleagues yesterday was at a, uh, the, a preliminary hearing for a fatality inquiry related to the death of a child who was in government care. This is a, a much older case. Um, okay, 10 years ago. Yeah, so that is a different story. There was uh, the criminal proceedings just wrapped up, uh, you know, relatively recently as these things tend to go. But the judge uh, had questions right off the bat about whether this is something they should even be doing given the work of this new committee. And so, and and the answer is yes, of course. And the, that was the ultimate answer they happily came to was that yes, we should continue this work. The the regular work of the fatality inquiry system is not supposed to come to a screeching halt right now because of this committee's work. But I, I think there needs to be some broader communication uh, throughout the the courts and justice about what this the goal of this panel is. And and maybe you guys can clarify more about you know what the ultimate aim is supposed to be and what conclusion they're supposed to be coming to. Not the point, but the the mission. I guess. Well, the problem is it's a two-part mission, and the two parts don't really connect. The first part is to do a review of the child death review system. This is not going to be the first review of the child death review system. They did one two years ago, uh, or two and a half years ago, in the wake of the Fatal Care series. So they're supposed to look at the way we investigate child deaths. And my understanding is not just the deaths of children in care, but all child deaths. Uh, So 
And yet they have no lawyers on the committee. They have no police officers on the committee. They have no former medical examiners on the committee. Uh, so they're going to have to now go out and, and find those people. It was very frustrating. Daniel Larravee, the new minister, said, oh, I guess maybe we should have had a lawyer here. And I thought, yes, maybe you should have. No, you didn't just think that, Paul. You said that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Quietly, uh, but yes. <laughs> yes. It's a, I need to remember, too, that my voice also carries in that yes. room. But, but, uh, ride back. I'll yes. have to give you my poking stick, Emma, for when I sit next to Paul at government functions. Oh, no. The, when they were speaking about um, FOIP and how transparent the uh, Alberta child welfare intervention system yeah, we is. Were, we were told that Alberta had one of the most transparent child welfare systems in Canada. Oh, which, at which point, point I actually snorted out. She did and went, no, no, Something else. <laughs> so I have a question. Earlier in the month, the premier said she was hoping to get some recommendations from this to move ahead with in the spring. Do you think that's a realistic proposition? Yeah. I mean, they're supposed to have a report on the child death review system finished in eight to ten weeks from when the panel was struck in December. I mean, that is not a thing that is going to happen. I mean, they they haven't they haven't yet organized a meeting with the medical examiner's office or the child and youth advocate or the um, auditor general or anybody from the RCMP or anybody from uh, the Edmonton or Calgary Police Services. Uh, I mean, these are the people they need to talk to if they're going to understand how the child death review system works. So that's the first part of their mandate. And then the second part of their mandate is much more amorphous. And that's basically, you know, to fix the child welfare system, um, you know, beginning with dealing with the generational fallout of residential schools and the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in the system. I mean, you know, that's an impossible task. That's like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. They're not going to fix the child welfare system with a bunch of, of meetings in government house. But if they can at least untangle the child death review system and come up with some solid recommendations for how to streamline it so that we don't have five different organizations working at cross purposes without sharing information, that would be a substantive practical step. You know, then we can worry uh, next about how we take what we learn from those child death reviews to prevent more deaths. And I just want to switch gears over to um, the other report that came out this week into the death of the carer, um, which was horrible to read, to be honest with you. Now, Paula, you got this report in advance. Yeah, this report was leaked to me, I think. And this is another fatality inquiry. This is a concluded fatality inquiry. All right. Into the death of Valerie Wolski. Um, she was a 41-year-old care worker, a psychologist who had long experience working with difficult clients, um, who was working for the Canadian Mental Health Association, caring for a young Indigenous man named Terence Saddleback, who had just aged out of the child welfare system. Um, and... Uh, I've been covering this case for five and a half years, and that's, I think, why somebody decided to leak me the report, because of all the time I had spent covering this from the beginning. Uh, what happened to Valerie Walski was that she worked for an agency um, who had a subcontract to look to run home placements for people. What she didn't know, and what it transpires her employers didn't know, is that Terrence Saddleback had a long and well-documented history of violence and sexual aggression, particularly towards women, uh, 
And that information, uh, which was kept by both Alberta Health Services and PDD, the Persons with Developmental Disabilities Board, which is part of Human Services, um, they basically lied, flat out lied to the Canadian Mental Health Association, told them that uh, Terrence Saddleback was a gentle giant, a big teddy bear who liked to tug girls' ponytails. Well, after he strangled Valerie Walski and pulled all the hair out of her head with his bare hands, uh, it transpired that, in fact, he'd had a long history of this kind of violence and had been rated a catastrophic risk to to uh, lash out at caregivers, especially female caregivers. It took years um, to get this fatality inquiry report done, an insane amount of time, six years, given that there were never any criminal charges. Uh, and uh, what the judge said is, here are some common sense recommendations. A woman shouldn't work alone with a big guy. Nobody should work alone with somebody they can't control. Uh, PDD should tell their contract agencies what people's backgrounds are. But my favorite recommendation from Judge uh, Bart Rossborough was, why do we make these recommendations if nobody listens to them? Because he pointed to you know a previous fatality inquiry to a very parallel case and said, you know, my final recommendation is that somebody should pay attention to the recommendations of fatality inquiries. And I said, and he said, I'm re-recommending that this happen. And so that's, I actually went to the press conference. Premier Notley did a press conference about something else that day. So I went and asked her about this. And there, you can usually tell as a reporter when you ask a politician about something, if they're sort of reluctantly saying, yes, we see this and we're going to move ahead with it. But I was pretty impressed by how well briefed the Premier was on this and how genuinely she seemed to want to move ahead with those recommendations. Um, two in particular, the one that Paula was saying about, I mean, this is just a simple case of tracking recommendations. I mean, there's not really much more to it than that, where I think there was nine in that fatality inquiry. And um, the judge actually made the point that he had tried to get his staff to figure out in all the previous recommendations that had been made in previous inquiries, how many of those had been acted on? And they actually couldn't figure that out. This is like trained lawyers trying to... Well, no, it would be impossible. It's like trying to count the grains of sand on the beach. Yeah, and so... <laughs> or the auditor... I mean, the auditor generals have to do follow-up reports to find out if their recommendations have been acted upon, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and so the premier actually said uh, quite candidly that she didn't even know that they weren't tracking that and that that was something that they were going to immediately move ahead on. The justice minister was enthusiastic about doing that. Um, and there's a practical part of that too, which is that that, is, that inquiry took forever and that is a costly inquiry. And if you are repeating recommendations and repeating labor, it's costing a lot of money to do that. So it, it just makes sense. Like there's no business in the world that would be having a system like that. Um, and then the other recommendation that they seemed keen to move ahead on was this: the company that Valerie Wolski worked for they weren't accredited to deal with someone like Taryn Saddleback. They actually didn't have the training, and they were being provided training at the time by PDD, which I think was willing to like, okay, yeah, get them the training. They're going to take this guy off our hands. So that was ongoing while it was happening, but she wasn't trained to deal with that. And that is something that they want to move ahead on is requiring that accreditation. But you see, no one wants to move ahead on the very common sense thing that says that a four foot 11 woman working alone at night with a man who's six foot five, 300 pounds and has an ungovernable raging temper and the intellect of a toddler um, 
that's not a good plan. And when I spoke to the CMHA about this this week, they said, well, in the wake of Walski's death, they have a new protocol, which is that caregivers working alone at night have to call in and check in every two hours. And if they don't hear from them, you know, for another half hour after that, then they send somebody. And I thought... That's a shitty plan. I, that was... That was sort of what I thought. Um, that didn't that didn't really answer the question of what happens when you're being when you're being killed. And the problem is that this is you know a year after Valerie Walski died, another caregiver named Diane McClements, who was working right. with uh, troubled youth, uh, was killed by a teenage boy she was looking after. She again was working alone at night. Um, that young man was was arrested and convicted. Uh, I mean he was he had some issues. But he he wasn't as developmentally he wasn't developmentally disabled to the extent that Terence Saddleback was. So you know if if someone had paid attention to how Valerie Walski died, would Diane McClement still be alive? I mean it's it's very possible. But here's the blunt truth: if you have two workers on at night instead of one, it costs you twice as much money. So who wants to pay twice as much money uh, for for this kind of caregiving? The other issue that the fatality inquiry looked at was you know. What happens when you shut down places like the Michener Center, which do have very troubling histories of their role in eugenics, but, you know, if you shut down all the institutions that look after people with very high needs, they cannot all be placed in the community and not safely, not for them and and not for their caregivers. So, uh, but, but why this ties back to the Child Death Review Panel is that there are fatality inquiries about the deaths of children in care, about the deaths of prisoners um, in provincial institutions, about uh, the, the you know deaths of deaths of all kinds that that are in the public realm, medical error deaths. We don't track those recommendations. We don't act on those recommendations. And at the Child Death Review Panel, uh, we heard that there are a backlog of 331 recommendations that have been made about the child welfare system that they're getting to. Um, I think they've done most of them. I think 90-something. They didn't say they'd done them. They said they'd, like, examined. Like, I mean, I don't think they... Mostly, they've made action on... So, the yeah. bulk of those, yeah. I think. But, you know, I mean... They're, they, they're starting them. to get them in one place, though. Yeah, and yeah. some of those are from a couple of... Like a decade mm-hmm. ago, Yeah, too. But, but this is the problem. We have we have piles and piles of fatality inquiry reports. Yeah. You can't act on all the recommendations. Some of the recommendations the judges have made over the years... I remember one judge who recommended that all children who come into care should have a full-body X-ray so that we can track bone damage. And that's not a good idea. Um, you know, some of the, so some of the recommendations don't deserve to be acted upon. Some of the recommendations from one judge to the next are frankly contradictory. So I'm not asking that every recommendation be actioned. I am asking that we at least, you know, track to see which ones you did, which ones you didn't do, why didn't you do the ones you didn't do, um, and that there be some kind of accounting. I think in Ontario, the, it's mentioned in the report that the system is they have to respond in writing they don't have to do it, but they have to say why they didn't. And that's exactly what the premier said. That She said, if we if we don't act on it, we at least owe Albertans an explanation for why not. And I think the important thing there is you put a time limit on it. Give it a, a year or whatever, whatever time makes sense. Have the government reply and make that uh, available online somewhere. Okay, so I want to switch gears now down to our friends in the States. Uh, there were some developments there over the weekend about a travel ban. Are they um, still your friends in the States? After Oh, yeah. Now, here's a thing. Donald Trump and uh, Australia. Oh, oh, Australia and America used to be like besties, you guys. They like to have pillow fights. 
and you know watch seasons of friends and eat popcorn and stuff but apparently that is not the case anymore according to some reports that uh, Donald Trump called our Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and was like we don't want to take your stupid refugees anyway if you're stupid island because Australia has a horrific record with refugees boat people in particular and we'll jail them on islands that it doesn't even own nice one Australia keeping classy so apparently there was quite the interesting phone call between donald trump and malcolm turnbull and that ended abruptly malcolm turnbull the australian uh, prime minister got on radio i think yesterday and said no 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 it was fine everything was cool it's no worries it's cool but malcolm turnbull is like a consummate politician and diplomat of the highest order so of course he was going to say that and donald trump tweeted him and said thank you for correcting the fake news record my friend malcolm turnbull but it was weird because america and australia honestly, have an incredibly close diplomatic tie. Australia backs up America on pretty much everything. I mean, we were first to jump into the war in Iraq on, you know, America's say-so. Uh, they're extremely close ties. And the idea that, that Donald Trump would call up one of his closest allies... That's just the easiest yell, job. Yell at him and hang up the, and <laughs> yeah. hang up the phone. Doesn't seem... I was seeing some great tweets about this, actually. Like, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't piss off a country with that many kangaroos. <laughs> like, don't mess with Australians. They'll call you names you won't even understand. And that is true. <laughs> yeah, that, that is, is true. true. I can confirm that. I, I mean, but, you know, his his reaction to Australia may have been frankly, one of the least offensive things he did in the past week, right? I, I mean, the weekend, last weekend for me was a, uh, it, it was a terrible weekend to be watching the news cycle in the background, trying to live my everyday, you know, non-work life with my kids going about the stuff I had to do and seeing in the background that there were, you know, the actions that he was taking to how 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 to even describe it? To put seven specific countries on a list and say people from here, even people who were previously allowed, are not going to be allowed for you know. Eventually, we found out whatever time period they're currently saying 120 days before what has now gone from a ban to extreme vetting to a ban to like what do we call it? It, it was awful, and I think a terrible, terrible mistake on the part of Donald Trump. I know many people have said that, but. If you want people to understand the United States and love the United States, the best thing you can do is let them into the United States. I know that just from personal experience, I had a completely different impression of the U.S. before I went to school there and worked there. I ended up, I had all kinds of, you know, stereotypical notions. I love the place and I, you know, to this day have a great affection for the U.S. that I would never have had if I hadn't gotten to spend time there and live there. So I think if you're worried about the relationship you have with the world, and I guess maybe this administration is not worried about the relationship with the world, but uh, I just thought from from my personal experience, it was the stupidest thing that ever could have been done. I spent Friday and Saturday nights just, trans I mean, an all-day Saturday transfixed on Twitter, watching the news, watching the lawyers from the American Civil Liberties Union uh, fighting to rescue the people who had been detained and who were being deported. Uh, and watching with great interest the way Canadian politicians responded to to the refugee ban and to the ban on on people from those seven countries, I was, you know, not exactly surprised to see Justin Trudeau tweeting out a picture of himself greeting Syrian refugees and pledging that Canada would keep its doors open. I was more intrigued to see Brad Wall, the Conservative Premier of Saskatchewan, doing something similar. But for me, the the most extraordinary thing was watching Jason Kenney go off on a complete 
tear, a complete rant against Donald Trump uh, calling this law demagoguery, pointing out that it, you know, it, it banned people from countries that have never committed terrorist incidents while still letting in radicals from Saudi Arabia, the Wahhabis. Um, he specifically pointed to a, the case of a former staffer of his who's Iranian-Canadian who uh, has a business in the States and is now stuck, can't get back and forth, even though he's a Canadian citizen, well, as Kenny told us, with a tattoo of a maple leaf on his chest, which was perhaps more information than I needed. Um, but it was it was extraordinary. And, you know, I retweeted Kenny's stuff and, and wrote a column uh, sort of inspired by all of this. And then I had other conservatives saying to me, well, you know, that's not true. That's completely not true. And I said, well, did you see what Jason Kenny said? And people were like, oh, Jason Kenny's wrong. And then I had... I had peak Paula moment in which Jason Kenney jumped into the fray and started defending my column, and it was kind of awesome. Now, let's not forget, though, Jason Kenney was uh, part of that whole um, hotline of, what was it called, that hotline? Uh, barbaric cultural pra- pra- practices hotline. His no, government voted for that. He also voted to take away health you know, healthcare from refugees, so it's not as though he has a 100% stellar record, no, no, but no, no. that particular Twitter thread that was... Indeed, a rant on Twitter was, uh, I was surprised to see. No, and I was surprised if for that very reason, because, mm. you know, he was the person who didn't want women wearing niqabs to be able to take the citizenship oath. Uh, I mean, that was Kenny as immigration minister. On the other hand, I think that's what gave his response this added credibility was, you know, and I guess you can say it's just politics, but... You know, Stuart was talking in the newsroom about, you know, what the response Kenny was getting. Oh, yeah. Well, I would say if you think this is a purely political gesture, take a look at Jason Kenny's mentions. Take a look at the so-called conservative base that he's supposed to be rallying in this whole Unite the Conservative Parties of Alberta thing. I don't think that that was a broad political win for him. I think that was something that, you know, and I could be wrong. I'm I'm willing to accept that I, I can't tell for sure what Jason Kenney's motivations were, but the amount of crap he took for that from a part of the party that he is supposed to be pandering to right now, uh, it seemed like too much to endure. Uh, it didn't seem like a political win to me. The news from Quebec City was so horrific and so upsetting and so clearly the culmination of the kind of hateful rhetoric that Donald Trump and Marine Le Pen of France have been peddling and pandering to the worst instincts in the worst sorts of people. Um, and I don't know what was more horrible, the thought that these six men, these family men, these public servants uh, lost their lives while in prayer and... Uh, or the fact that we have seen all kinds of people, including journalists, some of whom work for this company, um, peddling the disgusting lie that this was a false flag operation carried out by Syrian refugees, that somehow the Sécurité de Québec is covering up what really happened. And, and I was so proud when uh, I you know, listened back to Rachel Notley's speech on the steps of the legislature at our vigil, uh, putting into context just what those deaths mean for all Canadians. This isn't the death of Muslims. This is the murder of Canadians and one of the worst terrorist attacks ever to take place on Canadian soil. And inside a a place of prayer. I mean, that's just, it's one of those places you you assume that if you're in a church or your place of worship, that you're supposed to be safe there. It's a sacred space. Even as an atheist, I can recognize that. And yet there they were killed as they were praying. And it's, it was just so horrific. And then see the spin-off from that, you're right, Paula, about, oh, this is a cover-up, obviously. It was the Muslims killing the Muslims. Like, shut up. Don't be a dick. That Are was, we allowed yeah. to say that? I don't know. 
I said it. This is the R-rated press gallery this week. <laughs> um, but I, I'll, I'll just mention too. I mean, I've I've mentioned before on here that my wife is a Muslim, and I, she was tweeting Sunday night, and I was actually sitting on the couch. She'd already what I thought had gone to bed, but then I started seeing tweets on Twitter from her, and <laughs> <laughs> clearly, room next door. <laughs> clearly, she was still thinking about this because I think it is a really like these kind of moments for Muslim Canadians are just excruciating. Um, just. You know, she was referencing 9-11, where her dad picked her up from school that day and said, look, things are going to be a little bit harder for us because of this. You need to be ready for that. And she was pretty young to hear that. That's a really tough thing to hear as a kid. And uh, she was kind of saying, you know, it's really heartbreaking to imagine that that discussion is going on all across Canada right now with parents and kids of Muslim Canadians. And that, I mean, 9-11 was, you know, that was Muslims perpetrating an attack, a horrific attack. Uh, this was just, you know, peaceful Muslims praying, getting killed by some, you know, whatever he was, white nationalist. Uh, and then for like somehow we live in this political climate where then the backlash was against Muslims for that. And Donald Trump's press secretary was using that as an example of why they need a Muslim travel ban. Uh, it's just it's a complete absurdity. And I, I think, you know, I think that is a great point that she made on Twitter that it is tough to imagine that that discussion is happening all over Canada with Muslim Canadians. I think the rest of us should maybe keep that in mind. Keep that in mind with your interactions and just how you talk about these issues and how you think about them. Having a Jewish dad, I have never assumed that a synagogue was a safe place because I grew up seeing police officers standing outside the synagogue on high holidays to protect Jewish people inside from uh, neo-Nazis because that is the world in which we live. But never in any of those instances did anybody I saw suggest that the Jews were, were you know, were, were the threat to the people inside. And so the lie, the baseness of the lie that, that people are repeating all over the place. I mean, I've spent the whole week fighting with people on Facebook saying to me, oh, but really it was the Muslims. Like, like, what? No, really it wasn't. Really it wasn't. Now, I mean, the person who's been arrested uh, is charged and not convicted. And so, you know, uh, we need to be careful that we preserve the rights of Alexandre Bissonnette to a fair trial. But there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever of a second gunman. There is no evidence whatsoever that the Sécurité du Québec is party to some kind of pro-Muslim cover-up. Uh, and in the last few days, we've seen a spike in racist hate incidents uh, in Montreal, as well as in, in, in other parts of Quebec. And I think this is a time when all Canadians need to stand together and say, whether we're Muslims or Jews or Christians or atheists, whether we live in Quebec or Alberta or Ontario or Newfoundland, this is not our country. We are not going to be pulled into this tide pool of hate, and we are going to stand together, not by putting twibbons on our Twitter feeds, but by saying this is not who we are. So please, if you're listening to these hate mongers, if you're sharing this hate, if you're, you know, stop it. Because you're buying in to a racist lie that is designed to divide us. Yes, I agree, Paula. You said it more eloquently than I could because you know bigger words than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, let's go to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery. Sarah, 
What do you have for us? So what I'd like to recommend this week is something from ProPublica. It's a, it's a podcast, and it's an episode of The Breakthrough. And what really caught my attention is it's it's about what American journalists, and frankly, probably nor any journalist, can learn from reporting under Vladimir Putin. So uh, it's uh, a good listen, and I recommend that one. And it's a ProPublica. Any of their stuff is usually a win. So Cool. Pola. All right, I'm going to recommend something from The Gateway by a, a writer named Julia Heaton. Um, it, it is quite it's quite sweet in a way. I think after 2016, a lot of young people were saying, oh, this must be the worst year in history. Um, so it's not. Um, Julia went and asked a bunch of history professors at the U of A to nominate their worst year in history. Uh, depending on their disciplines, they picked different years. They didn't pick my worst year, which I would I would say was 1348, which is the, the height of the Black Death that killed 100 million people. But uh, you can read Julia's piece uh, from, from the U of A Gateway on where U of A history professors think the worst year in history was. I'm not sure that it's exactly cheering, but it does put uh, it does put the recent events in context. That's a great idea for a piece, by the way. That is so good. Congratulations for creative journalism. <laughs> read about other terrible things that have happened to humanity and feel better <laughs> about your life right now. Uh, I'm going to recommend um, Jason Ma. I've been on a Jason Markasoff roll lately. Hey, so and Jason Markasoff's been on a roll lately. So there you are. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm going to recommend yet another of his pieces. Uh, this is from McLean's magazine. It is called "The New Underground Railroad." Uh, basically, it's about uh, more refugees making the trek north to Canada to escape a harsh new U.S. regime, and they're risking life and limb. And uh, Jason went out and spoke to some of those, some of whom have lost fingers and toes to Literally frostbite. Literally lost limbs. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's it's an incredibly interesting read. I highly recommend it. Stuart, what do you have for us? Uh, well, I've got a piece from Politico. Um, and if you kind of felt like there was a lot of insidery reporting coming out of the Trump administration, you're definitely right. There's a lot of leaking going on. And this is a story about that leaking, which I think is an interesting story in itself. It's about... This is not a, like, you know, the Obama team came in. They were very tight. They've been very loyal together for a long time. The Trump team is not like that. Uh, and so the quote that they used in their tweet about this story is, quote, people are just knifing each other in this administration. And I, I think it's a great read. And I, it makes me wonder how long this is sustainable. So it, it's worth a, worth a read. That sounds intriguing. Guys, thank you so much for joining me, Sarah, Paula, Stuart, and Sean Butts for filming some of this and putting it online at edmontonjournal.com so you can see all of our really pretty faces. Uh, that's not true in my case at all. <laughs> I should probably wash my hair. We're all, we're all print people. <laughs> we know it. There's a reason to. <laughs> Uh, you can find all, obviously all of our episodes of the Press Gallery at theedmontonjournal.com. You can also subscribe to SoundCloud, iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Hope to see you or hear you or rather we hope you listen to us this time next week on the Press Gallery. 